Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. And we are back today, listeners, with a continuation of our two-part episode on Bonnie Cashin. The first part aired a couple days ago, so if you already haven't listened to part one, we promise that you do not want to miss out on that conversation about the very early years of Bonnie Cashin's now legendary career. Yes, Cashin was one of those rare designers who really spoke her own fashion language. She's often credited as the originator of the layered look, for instance, that, you know, came about and exists in mainstream fashion. She was also a proponent of comfort, practicality, and gave women the tools to invent their own unique style. She once remarked, quote, the woman I mostly visualize when designing is probably what could be called a fashion independent. These clothes she collects are quite usually above fashion. She isn't snagged by the latest promotion, other latest madness, or the latest they say. End quote. Yes. Today, a curator of Bonnie Cashin's personal archive, Dr. Stephanie Lake, joins us to continue our conversation about her work on Cashin, which culminated in her 2016 book, Bonnie Cashin, Chic is Where You Find It. Welcome back, Dr. Lake. You actually write in the book, um, I'm quoting you, you say, while in Hollywood, Cashin developed her approach to modern wardrobes centered on mixing North and South or East and West ancient with modern, and luxury with utility. And that's that's quite a lot to take in. <laughs> so um, I'm just curious, like, if you had to give us, like, an elevator pitch snippet, how would you describe the Cashin aesthetic? And who was the Cashin client? The Cashin look is really accurately described by one of Jonathan Adler's lines in the foreword for my book, where he writes, I'm just mad for her Japanese-inspired ponchos. And it's true that you can take a passion garment and you can really separate it into different cultures, different eras. And she was constantly taking in all of this material first in Hollywood, where she was researching for different centuries, different storylines, and then through her own travels. And she also had incredible relationships with museum curators. So she was a tremendous student of clothing history, not particularly fashion history, but clothing history and to understand what were these constituent ideas that made sense at that time? And she would approach clothing in the same way. What are the needs and desires and ideas that represent this particular moment in time? When the Cody Awards, when she was given her Hall of Fame Award, they described it's, it's best to leave the adjectives alone and just call them cashing. Mm-hmm. She created her own sartorial language. Yes, for sure. And and even though we do see these t- these little elements that you can see of her drawing inspirations from other cultures, it's always like so fresh and so modern, you know, because of that, it separates itself from any accusations of appropriation. Again, it is Bonnie's own sartorial language, for sure. Completely. 
So, you know, I would argue that Bonnie was one of fashion's all-time greatest innovators because along the likes of Balenciaga, I would even argue because he was also concurrently working at this time. What was her relationship to French fashion? It's really interesting because on the one hand, she revered it. And she would say, born in another time, perhaps in another country, my niche would have been the couture. And she loved the tradition of craftsmanship. She loved the attention to the highest standards. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she absolutely loathed the uh, superiority that French fashion held over the Americans. And at mid-century, she really thought when she ended her contract at Fox, she really thought that she was going to become a painter. And she wanted to test that theory. So she went to France for a couple of months. And she planned to just crawl Paris and paint a la Toulouse Trek, which is what she did. But she also spent a lot of time in fashion circles and salons with French Harper's Bazaar and cocktails with Jacques Vaz and all of these notables in Paris. And she was absolutely, and when I read her work, it's almost comically livid about what she thought. <laughs> she was furious. And at everything that was happening, she understood the post-war psychology of turning to really lavish and opulent dress. She understood the profitability. It was, here was a big new change in fashion. And she just despised it. She thought it was, it was a huge insult to all women. <laughs> and really her one quote at the time, she said, you cannot stuff a dress weighing 20 pounds into an overnight bag. No. And she was focused on modernity. She was focused on all the gains that women had made during the 40s and furious to see what was dominating the headlines. And it was the turning point where she decided she had to go into ready to wear. It was a rescue mission. It was a crusade without question. And there are stories of buyers and press attending her showings right around mid-century and just leaving in tears because of her rousing talks that she would give on America taking off in a new direction and a new modernity and this would define the century. And she also wrote to Basak and said, would you, who was Dior's owner, and would you like to partner with me? She was very convinced that she was going to change what was happening in French fashion at the time. The other relationship that she had with French fashion for her entire career was that she was so highly regarded and she was always receiving compliments from French designers and also so widely copied. It never waned. And there was always a sense with it that Americans were proud of this, that here was this American designer, this independent woman who had the French following in her footsteps. And um, there were headlines like Bonnie Cash and Bold Innovator, her ideas copied by Paris, is how her work would be placed in context. And even Bill Cunningham at one point wrote, the French really should see Bonnie's clothes. They would rejuvenate Chanel. Mm -hmm. And it was just an ongoing topic in private correspondence and in the press alike. And Givenchy's saying Miss Cashin is one of the greatest designers in the world, which was an incredible compliment from any of her esteemed peers was welcome. But at the same time, she would get letters saying, oh, the theft of your designs were providing great laughs at dinner last night with Scaparelli. So she was always set apart in this very specific way where she was at, at once applauded for being so highly revered and at the same time so frustrated by being blatantly copied by a number of her French peers. Yeah. 
And speaking of her innovations, would you tell us about some of your favorites? Because I mean, from from the her use of leather to layering to tall boots and you know mix and match wardrobes, so much of the cash and language still defines how we all dress today. But at that time, these things were incredibly new. It is staggering. And The Economist once wrote that Bonnie's contributions to fashion were second in market value only to that of denim. She And one of my working titles for a documentary is A Few Billion Dollars Later, Bonnie <laughs> Cash in the World of Fashion, because it is that significant. Yeah. And starting with layering, that at mid-century, she launched her first layered look and it was the concept, but also coining the term layering, which no one understood. She had to explain it over and over and in so many different ways what it meant to have a layered look. Clothes were not sold that way. As she described it, a complete bombshell. She won the Cody Award and the Neiman Marcus Award that very first year for that idea. And it was the first time a designer had ever won both awards in the same year. It just set the entire industry back on its heels. Mm -hmm. And she also did that professionally, as we were touching on earlier, because she refused to work for anyone. She set out to design whatever she wanted at any price point, and she would pair with the manufacturers who could do that. And her name would be on the label, but she never owned manufacturing or worked for a specific company. She was able to have all of these different things in different categories appear on the market. At a, you could buy a little raincoat for $2.95, or you could buy a fur for four figures. It was unheard of to be able to do that. So even to start to break apart those restrictions in the industry, it took decades for that to happen. Decades later, there were designers trying to do that through licensing with um, very little success. It still is something that's notable now when someone pops up in an unexpected place with a product that's not completely in line with, with what they're known for. It's something that still is really exciting in the industry. And that's something that she initiated at mid-century. Women's Wear Daily wrote about it saying, we have no idea how this will work. It was just impossible to conceive of working that way. And then, as you mentioned, leather. She brought leather to high fashion at a time when it was viewed as something really for country clothes, associated with fetishism and rebellion. The New York Times, they viewed her first collection saying the ladies looked like they were from Mars and society columns would write of people, of women appearing in the city in leather clothes. It was, it was so shocking at the time. Marlena Dietrich then came out saying, Bonnie Cashin is my favorite ready to wear designer and ordered everything in every color. <laughs> uh, for, but to think about that, those two alone, just layering and using leather for high fashion, that those were shocking concepts that she introduced. Mohair was the same. No one was using mohair and she really loved the blankets she had at her country house. So she asked Mills to produce mohair for her clothing design, which was something that was immediately copied in Paris and then Vreeland rushed it into the pages in the US because it was such fashion news. Mm -hmm. The other, another huge term and concept, hardware, which she introduced, the use of industrial closures and calling it hardware. And how many of us talk about the hardware on our handbags. That was something that was hers alone. And to trace through the decades, you can always find something where you have to kind of do a double take that she was doing knee-high boots in the 40s, mini skirts in the 50s. She brought the tote bag to high fashion in the 60s. The 70s introduced seven easy pieces. 
And it was as Eleanor Lambert said, it's the book of today designed 10 years ago by Bonnie Cashman. Yeah. It was just on the dot. Everything that she introduced became something that's in the mainstream of fashion. There's a great summary from The Guardian that talks about Bonnie being so famous in the world of Vogue. She won every award in the U.S., in England. She was, she just, she dominated the field and then retired. She never wanted to build an empire, but she retired as The Guardian outlines. She retired just as Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Donna Karen made empires out of her ideas. Mm-hmm. But she lived to be vindicated and to see the world clad in her concepts, which is exactly what you talk to your students about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of leather, the other thing, and 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 the textiles, These she had this just love affair with like these really soft, schlubby, textural textiles. And they're very frequently in riotous colors. Bonnie was not afraid of color. Can you talk to us about both of those other aspects of her work? Because to me, that is one of the things when I see a skirt in a museum exhibition or I see something in a vintage store, those two things in combination with with each other is like, it's a cashin, like hands down, no questions asked. Absolutely. She could only think in color. And she was always an artist, first and foremost. And she always had kind of one foot out the door that she was going to become a painter. That was always her big threat when she was displeased with something. I'm going to leave it it to become a painter. (laughs) Um, And so she, all of her colors, they were so important to her that she would hand mix them in paint, in watercolor and in oil paint. And then that would be handed off to her manufacturers, to the dyers and weavers working on skins or textiles. Sills who would say, if Bonnie says, I want something matched to a prune, I will buy a package of Sunsweet prunes and send it into the factory. Because it was that accuracy and specificity of color. Her personal palette was so important to her. And even when she traveled, she would bring boxes of colored tissue and decorate the hotel room because she had to always be surrounded by her personal palette. It really was hers alone. The same with the textiles. I almost named a chapter in the book Hunks and Flames because she was so just enamored of hunks of fabric and flinging them around the body. And she always used those terms to talk about fabric. She hated any unnecessary seeming. She hated what she called the torturing of textiles. And because of her childhood, because of her experience with the most beautiful textiles in the world, she always revered them. And a huge part of creating them, there are the mills that she worked with were primarily independent British mills. That's where she could get the small runs that she wanted. These were mills that sold to her and sold to couture houses. And she had some American sources, Dorothy Liebes and Jasco Jersey, where she would collaborate on colorways and, and do things. But most of it was, was through these British sources. And there's incredible correspondence where she would be asking about, can you twist the yarn a particular way? Mm. And the mill's writing back either that's completely impossible or yes, we've never tried it. Let's do it. And um, and then she would get packets, these little parcels of yarn sent to her. I have, I have shelves and shelves and shelves of yarn uh, that she was sending back and forth in order to get the exact weave to her specifications. Or she would want something that was as heavy as a rug. Mm-hmm. And it was part of her artistry in that too. She thought of clothing as sculpture. She wanted to be able to carve shapes out of material instead of having to use 
steaming an infrastructure. You'll never see a cashing garment that has any of that, anything to create shape. It's purely in the weight of the textile alone. And so really to answer your question where these textiles came from, it was her imagination. She created textiles that were only available in her clothing lines. Yeah. And that's why her, that's part of one of the reasons why her look is so very distinctive. And one of my favorite things to show students um, in our collection at FIT, we have three one foot boxes. So we have like three or four linear feet of her fabric swatches. Um, And a lot of them also note the manufacturer, the price per yard. And I've done some of the historic currency um, conversions on some of these. And I was staggered at the price per yard. This is before they were even sewn into garments. Um, Some of these textiles are breathtakingly expensive. So for our listeners, can you contextualize the prices of her clothing? And again, you noted that she did design at all price points. And also to, you know, for some of her more expensive pieces, who were some of her most notable patrons? Her clothing was expensive. And she also never knew the retail prices. She was completely disinterested in that part of figuring out the bottom line. And so she would say prices fall where they may. She was never going to not use the finest materials in her designs. And there was a constant discussion with between the mills and her manufacturers and to buyers and to consumers as to why these pieces were so valuable and why they were worth more than every penny. Because even though they were expensive, as you're outlining, for what they were, they were absolutely an incredible deal in a way. And these, like the piece that I'm wearing right now, which is from the 40s. And, you know, there's, these are the longest lasting of, of all textiles that you can imagine. So that was something that was so important to her too, that the prices, um, they reflected the quality and the clothes were meant to last for decades. That was another way in which she was very non-fashion. She was interested in longevity. She despised obsolescence. And that was reflected in the textiles that she used and the way she encouraged her buyers to collect her clothes and to wear them over time. And that you couldn't date one season to the next. She wasn't ever going to switch according to a trend or something that was selling well. She was going to do what she wanted to do exclusively. Her clients were women of the world like her that were distinctive in whatever world they dominated and inhabited and sought something truly individual in everything that they did, including their dress. And so it was Elizabeth Taylor, Ingrid Bergman, Maggie Smith, the Duchess of Devonshire, Lee Radswell, all of these women that could be so wildly different in what they did on a day-to-day basis, but they all had a certain spirit and approach to life that was very confident and specific to them. They all have a very recognizable style. Sure. And and I liked the fact that they had their own recognizable styles, but yet they could all meet in the middle. Or, or, yeah, there was cash cash and was this nexus point for all of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we have mentioned coach briefly. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about how that brand came into existence and Cashin's role in the establishment of coach. I can do that for you. And I'm the only person who can do that because I knew everyone involved and I inherited all of their papers Mm -hmm. 
And it is an incredible story. It's one of the most triumphant in fashion history. And it's centered on two women, Lillian Kahn and Bonnie Cashin, who promised each other that they were going to start this handbag company. So um, Lillian, her husband, Miles, when he came back from the war in the 40s, he joined Gale Leather, which was a manufacturing company for wholesale men's leather goods. And his family had a stake in the company. So in the late 50s, in late 1957, he decided that he wanted to expand the work that he did there. He wanted to create a retail operation for men's accessories. And so he trademarked the name Coach. And it made its way into kind of the executive catalog world. Lillian at the time, she wanted to expand the business as well. And now by 1961, they had purchased it. And she had said to Miles, I want to launch a women's retail line. And I want it to be Bonnie Cashin. I want it to be designed to go with her clothing. She loved Bonnie's work. And Miles absolutely scoffed at the idea and said, that will never work. Don't, you know, forget it. Speaking of billions dollars later. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So these two women, luckily Lillian completely ignored her husband and she had cold called Bonnie. And Bonnie recalled this sweet voice on the other end of the phone, outlining she wanted to start this new company. It would be called Coach. It would be Bonnie Cash and Designs. It would go with her clothing. And Bonnie said, yes, yes, I would love to do that, but I don't have any time. I can't. And so there, there's, therein is the promise that they promised each other that they would basically circle back when the time was right. So October 1962, Coach was launched, which is five years to the date after the trademark. And against Miles' (laughs) advice and putting his foot down, these two women triumphed. And Bonnie explained that it was a facsimile explosion, the initial bags that went out. There were copies, I have press clippings where she would circle the bag and say, this bag was copied all around the world. And even McCall's did an unauthorized pattern for 75 cents where you could make your own Bonnie Cash and handbag. Saks took their entire block of store windows. It was all devoted to Bonnie Cashin. Now this complete Cashin look, the garments, hats, and the accessories. And it's a fascinating story because these women, it's, it's this American dream and these women who just shattered a glass ceiling just by a simple promise to each other, both seeing things that they wanted in their wardrobes mm-hmm. and really disregarding anyone who got in their way and going ahead to make history. It's within all the companies that Bonnie partnered with, 50-odd companies, it was far from the biggest account. It was not the only time a company was created specifically for her, but it's the only time that she and another professional woman partnered to create something. And it's something that, of course, everyone in the world recognizes today. One of the hallmarks that she introduced during those years is her brass turn lock, which she used on all of her clothing, all of her accessories, not just handbags, but she used it for 20 years on everything she designed. Mm-hmm. And that single cash and turn lock has now become one of the most recognizable design signatures in the entire world. And it's the closest really that she ever came to a logo. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us how that turn lock toggle closure came to be exactly? It was, she was, because she had introduced the term hardware and because she was always looking at industrial closures, I have boxes of, of closures and things that people would send to her. Like, here's the closure on a fireman's jacket, or here's something from our barn. <laughs> and, uh, she was so known for always sourcing industrial closures. So 
the brass turn lock. Her brass turn lock was taken directly from the convertible that she drove in Hollywood. And it's what she used to batten down the top of that convertible as she would race through the Hollywood Hills to work. And even in the 70s, models would, would talk to the press about, she orders them from automobile manufacturers. <laughs> she always did. She's amazing. Um, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, I know that you probably have, but I was just like, she's one of those people that I like, I really missed out. I would love to sit down and have a martini with Bonnie Cash. And, and she was quite fond of putting them, sketching women drinking martinis in her, in her fashion sketches. She was fond of martinis, period. <laughs> she defined her own class. <laughs> I have to say, this next bit that I think we're going to talk about really blew my mind. I had no idea. This is something that you unearthed that I think, besides people who have read your book already, people just do not know this. And that is the fact that Cashin had a long-term relationship with Hermes. So tell us more. I mean, I, I think a lot of people's ears just went, ooh, like that. It is so surprising. And even when I've been talking to the archivists at Hermes, it is not done. This was the only time that there was an outside designer who was sold in Hermes. And the relationship was for at least a decade. And she was the only American ready-to-wear designer who was ever invited to be sold at Hermes. And the fact that her label, you have a garment at FIT. I know that you have one that has both the Hermes and the Cashin label intact. But the fact that her labels were alongside Hermes being sold in their store and, and anywhere that their work was sold was just so unbelievably singular and significant. And there were plenty of letters and correspondence at the time to Bonnie saying, you're going to be the most famous fashion designer in the world. This is just unbelievable. And um, she was just never interested in chasing that part of it. She loved the company. She loved the craftsmanship. It was obviously reciprocated. She was able to create everything through her American sources and manufacturers. Nothing was created by Hermes. And then in 1968 and 69, they asked her to become their in-house designer for Hermes Sport which she wrote back saying, yes, that she would love to do that. It would be such fun. And she also wanted to take a reduced fee because it would just be such a fun project. So you imagine that negotiating with Hermes and you say, yes, I'd love to do it, but I'd like to be paid less because (laughs) I just would enjoy it so much. And that was really her, her entire approach to her design was to make that secondary. And she was a millionaire many times over. She never had to worry about money. But there, as an article, and it was in People magazine right around 1980, it said from an anonymous source, she could have been the wealthiest designer in America, but she was so bloody uncompromising. And I think that Hermes moment reflects part of that, what her priorities really were, which were having authentic relationships with people and exchanging creative ideas. She didn't want contract terms and numbers to dominate the exchange. Yeah. I mean, you can you can sense the joy that designing gave to her when you see her clothing. And I think and and also just like living a life very intentionally seems like it was very important to her. And and travel was actually a big part of that as well. So, how did travel and all of her global wanderings kind of work their way into her design work? 
One of her quotes, the open-minded is the true explorer, really sums up how she approached her life mm-hmm. and how travel was so important to it. And of course, there is this aesthetic imprint, all the places that she visited. She was always traveling with a sketchbook in hand and a camera around her neck and taking photographs of everything she saw, whether it was ruins or a crowd in Tokyo or little ladies at a Russian market or lone fishermen in Greece. She was constantly documenting the scene and wondering why people look the way that they do and citing these points of origin as a way to convey why my clothes look the way that they do. And so it was this, the mixture of culture and eras, but also just the ability that she had to live that life because she did not have an employer. She was single. She didn't have children. She could hop on a boat or a train and in time a jet to go anywhere in the world anytime she wanted. And that allure and that her persona, which was so very true, was reflected in all her work, was reflected in everything that surrounded it at the time, reflected in her sketches and the promotion. It was just so effortless that she was living this life. And you could purchase a piece of it and have that spirit that was embodied in her clothes. And that was, as you say, it's just, it's so prominent and so recognizable. It's not surprising she was the first designer asked to design flight attendant uniforms for passenger jet travel in 1958. Wow. She was perfect for that moment because she was experiencing the world in a way that no one really was, no single woman, certainly. She would travel to a World's Fair in Brussels or she would be in Moscow for a trade fair and she was advising India's Ministry of Commerce on textile export. She was this woman of the world that was absolutely refusing to pay any attention to convention. And that's what her clothes represented as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I, I actually wrote my um, MA thesis on Tina Leeser. We've already done an episode on her. And one of the things that stood out to me in your, your work on Cashin is that both Leeser and Cashin very much shared this very specific vision of how fashion could be a force of global change for the positive. And in later years of her career, Cashin actually thought deeply about this. And I think this also maybe really came out of a a lot of the traveling that she had done. And she implemented more than a few different ventures to support the future of design. Can you tell us more about this part of her work? She really, the the last chapter of her life, she said she was redefining, it was just going to be Bonnie Cashin. And without the industry attached to it, she also had retired to become a painter, finally. Um, (laughs) And all dreams came true. But what she really saw was this central issue of the care and feeding of the creative Mm -hmm. designer, of the truly creative person. So she set out to isolate what are the major stumbling blocks or obstacles. She created the Impossible Dream Fund, was the first name for it. And then it became the Innovative Design Fund. And it was centered on funding design prototypes because she would see so many people who had these great ideas, but they couldn't translate it into an object in order to bring it to a manufacturer. So that was the specific point in the creative process that she wanted to fund. And she enlisted museum curators and magazine editors, industrial designers. There were all of these letters and memos of Jack Lenore Larson and Saul Bass and Gloria Steinem, all these people who would gather at her apartment to discuss and support the idea. And have martinis. And with martinis, of course, (laughs) of course, without doubt. And um, Buckminster Fuller was the honorary chair. 
And it was supported by Mobile Oil and the NEA and her own investment. And it was, it was a significant endeavor for her. She also set up some other lecture series and programs at different institutions. And that's something that when she died, I expanded and created another multi-million dollar network of endeavors to support creativity, to provide grants in specific areas of study and creativity. That's amazing. And I think that it's really interesting at this particular moment, like mid-century, moving into like to the 60s and 70s, that a lot of these women designers like Cashin, like Lisa, who also had her own kind of like philanthropic endeavors related to fashion, you know, and even a little bit earlier, Elizabeth Hawes, these were women that kind of came to define American fashion. They were also, as a sideline or directly part of their business strategies, they were engaging in activism and also recognizing at the same time that there were a lot of inequities inherent um, within the fashion system globally or otherwise. And they were always trying to lift up their fellow creators from around the world. And and we're talking now, we're talking women doing this 180 years ago. So I had a little bit of a moment when I was reading your book again that I came across an image of this typewritten note where Bonnie had um, declared, maybe I was really non-fashion. And then very aggressively below and reading, she'd like scribbled cashin, not fashion. And, And it stopped me in my tracks because we have some of Elizabeth Hawes's unpublished manuscripts at FIT as well. And, uh, you know, she was living in the Hotel Chelsea. This is very near to the end of her life. And she was, it was ex- almost like the exact same thing. I have all these typewritten notes from Hawes with like scribbles like out in ink. And, and, and these women were clearly incredible visionaries and already saw all these inherent flaws and and like you said, stumbling blocks in fashion. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what was it about them, these women, or this specific moment when they foresaw what the fashion industry is experiencing now, you know, because because even pre-COVID, the industry was already critiquing itself on the matter of equality, waste, labor abuses. You know, why has this line of thinking taken so long, 180 years to adopt quality, and, and I guess what you would maybe even term cashinism. And yes, and John, that's one of Jonathan's terms too, in the form of his <laughs> cashinism, being a devout follower. And the reason it's, it comes down to profits, it comes down to the fear of not meeting and exceeding them, and it's relentless, and there's not the space for the creative thinking and for an evolution to take place. And that's what Bonnie saw even in the 30s. And so her tactic was always to not wait for change and to not complain about change, but to do things differently. She was just constantly chipping away at all of the industry ills that really sickened her, whether it was specific shortcuts in manufacturing, whether it was gimmicks in promotion, um, obsolescence. She would write her, her version of writing. These, she would write these manifestos in the 70s. And it was always on change that relates and obsolescence is obsolete. And she was always trying to encourage that you can do better and you can be an agent of change. And you must do that, especially if you have a platform and a position within this incredible industry. She was always trying to bend it to her will. And she did bend it and sometimes shattered it in the way that she was able to work and maintain her creativity, absolutely protect her joy 
Yes. In, in design. And that was her main message to people was figure out what you can do and others will, others will follow, others will join you, but it was never waiting or demanding something that waiting for demanding something that she couldn't do herself. And I think that's been lost too in the, in just the, the massive, the companies that we have, the huge numbers that are involved, it, it people kind of forget that they can change mm-hmm. the way that their industry operates. They can change the way that they operate themselves. That was always Bonnie's wish is that people really kind of get their priorities straight and do something about it, but don't wait for others to have the same, you know, epiphany. Yeah. I, for one, I'm, I'm ready for my healthy dose of cashinism. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephanie, you knew Bonnie incredibly well. What do you think her advice for getting dressed would be today? These are some of my favorites. Every length is good, depending on the leg and the occasion. <laughs> Taste, not price, is a great leveler. Mm-hmm. Think of yourself as a character and dress the part. And chic is where you find it. Which is the name of your book? It is. One and, of her very favorite phrases. And highly recommended to our listeners that they all rush out and get a thank coffee. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Lake, thank you so much for joining us on Dress. This was really fun. And and, and I think that this episode is going to make a lot of people who have requested it very, very happy. So thank you for joining us. No, it is my honor. Thank you. What are you up to these days? Uh, today's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I will celebrate that. And um, it's it's such an interesting year, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. um, what I'm up to really is teaching my seven-year-old Mandarin every day because she's in Chinese immersion. So I am I am focused on lots of thinking and lots of planning and lots of very, very important jobs and opportunities that are related to the most personal parts of my life. Perfect. Focused on family, focused on our happiness, focused on how do we emerge from all of this with everything that we love feeling just stronger than ever. So we are just, we're happy and snuggled in. And um, as I said, teaching, teaching Chinese, which is, it's an incredible thing to listen to Chinese every day and then to ask my seven-year-old to translate for me. So I understand the instructions for her schoolwork. (laughs) <laughs> but that is, um, that's a big part of, big part of my life right now. Of course, I do have my, I have my own jewelry company. I have everything that is always ongoing with the archive. But this year is just, it's a year about priorities that are the most significant and near and dear and full stop. I think that's what 2020 has really done for a lot of people is like refocused your life through a lens. And, and Bonnie would be proud of that too, because I think that, that intentionality has come back to a lot of us through all of this hardship. I hope that that is, you know, that is the silver lining is to have this forced interruption. And what do you do to really cherish that? And that was my first thought when this happened was that I will never have another year where I'm with my husband and our daughter 24 hours a day and doing all that we do publicly and privately, but just under this one roof and without interruption. It's a really magical experience to be able to do that. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how this next year evolves and how we start to incorporate all the things that we do miss so dearly 
but it's, it's really about just cherishing every single thing that we get to do now and get to do together and finding a lot of appreciation for things that otherwise you just don't even stop to think about. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much again for joining us on Dress. Oh, my pleasure. Once again, Stephanie, thank you for sharing not only Bonnie's joy, but your own unique insights into her life and work. What an incredible opportunity to work one-on-one with Bonnie week after week, and now April to be charged with caring for her incredible personal archive. I really think it goes without saying that there are probably more than a few new Bonnie Cashin fans in the world after listening to this episode. Yes. And, and I, for one, was inspired to wear Bonnie Cashin today while we recorded this. Our listeners at home can't see, but today I'm wearing one of her cashmere creations, which she did for Ballantine, which was a Scottish knitting company. And it's this grass green cardigan with these highly unusual flat brass buttons. And it has a hood, which for the 1960s, in true Cashin fashion, was wildly ahead of its time, you know, a cardigan with a hood on it. So I'm curious, do you have any uh, cash in in your closet, Cass? Or or do you have any covets that you would like to add to your closet? I mean, that is the question of the year, right? What, (laughs) if you had the opportunity, what (laughs) items for fashion history would you put into your closet? But I actually do, April. I have a number of cash and coach purses with that famed toggle design. You know, it kind of turns and clasps shut. And I just love them. They're so simple. They're so beautiful. I have two blacks, a brown, and a blue. So (laughs) (laughs) I think I've seen you wear all of them. So you you use them. (laughs) They get put to use. Yes, absolutely. And that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the many innovations by Bonnie Cashin, which have informed your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode and be sure to check out our Instagram for images of Cashin's amazing work. You can also DM us at dress underscore podcast if you'd like to write to us. Or if you prefer email, you can write to us with listener suggestions at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.